0: Hello everyone, I'm Lily Anderson and this is Choosing Glory. Today we're talking about sections 81 through 83. I think I'm a little late on this one, but I still am going to share some things that I wasn't able to get published earlier. The good news is I'm finally on Apple Podcasts, so if you want to share information about this podcast, it can also be found on Apple and Google now, as well as Spotify and Audible and some other smaller ones. Let's talk about section 83. It's a nice statement here that says that women have a claim on their husbands for their maintenance. And then it says later that children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. It's a simple little statement, but I think it's important to celebrate for a moment these, the fact that we have some wonderful men who are willing to live up to this responsibility, We certainly recognize, and the family proclamation makes a point of saying that individual adaptation is required in the divine division of labor that God has established, where men provide, protect, and preside, and women nurture and teach. Certainly, there are times when that ideal situation doesn't work, but let's not apologize for the ideal. It's a wonderful thing when men will assume that responsibility to take care of the physical needs, and the financial needs of a family. Thank you, all you good brothers who are willing to do that. I know how much your wives appreciate that, and your children may not understand what a great blessing that is at this point, but they will someday. Again, situations vary, and blessings be to all those who have to adapt. We all need those blessings, don't we? But it's a nice statement, and I really want to just acknowledge you wonderful brethren who are willing to take that on and make it possible for your wives to be home and nurture and teach your children. And they make the neighborhoods run. When I was Relief Society president, I really learned that, that those women at home make the neighborhoods run. So grateful for all of you. I'm kind of going backwards now. I'm looking at section 82. Toward the end, in verse 22, there's a statement that says, Make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, and they will not destroy you. Interesting statement that the Lord's making here, and as ever, good advice. He's not saying that we should join in with the mammon of unrighteousness. That wouldn't be a good idea. But he is saying, don't be combative. Don't be adversarial. If you can make friends, make friends. Sometimes it's said of us in the church that we are really good at fellowshipping people who are just like us. That's a pretty sad commentary, and I hope it's not true. I hope at least that we learn to be better about fellowshipping everyone, those that are the same, those that are different. We all need to become one and join in the creation of the establishment of Zion. Nevertheless, there are people who are not in the cause of Zion, and they are not of the righteous we can still be friendly, we can still make peace wherever possible, do good works to them, return good for evil. Quick story about that. Our oldest son, Adam, in high school, happened to sit by a kid the first day of his math class that was a, a skater kind of kid, and he looked the part. And the teacher was really a buttoned down female teacher and took a real dislike to both that other kid and Adam, because she sort of grouped them together, I guess. And Adam reported that a little while later that his math teacher really was treating him like she didn't like him. And that was a new experience for Adam. He had always been a good student and teachers had really liked him. And I said, well, you know, I'm pretty diplomatic. Let me go to parent night and see what I can do. So I did go and I made a point of staying after and saying nice things about her class. And making sure she knew I was Adam's mom and that Adam was enjoying her teaching methods or whatever. But she was really curt and abrupt in response. So my great diplomatic talents didn't work at all that night. And I went home and I told Adam, look, she's a tough cookie. I said, you got two choices. You can either just put your head down and get through the year or you can try to return good for evil. Don't be that fake Eddie Haskell type guy from the Leave it to Beaver who was always just kissing up to the adults. I'm not talking about being fake. I'm talking about being genuine. I'm talking about being friendly, saying hi to her in the halls, helping if you can, just smiling a lot, being as friendly as you know how, even in the face of her unfriendliness. And I said it might work. It might not work. But either way, it'll be a better way to use your year to learn to return good for evil And he decided to do that. Now, it doesn't always work out, as I said, but it did work out for Adam. I think he became her favorite student, maybe of all time. The next year, when he was coming down the math hall or the math wing to find his class for the next year, she was at her door and saw him and called him over. Hey, how are you doing? How's your summer? And she looked at his schedule. Oh, you have so-and-so for your math teacher this year? I'm going to walk you down and tell him he's got the greatest kid in the school in his class this year anyway it it really was a lovely ending to the story it might not have worked out that way it still would have made a better person of Adam and it makes a better person of each of us if we can return good for evil and not let other people's mood or behavior set the tone for us we can behave like Christians no matter what the circumstance and that's the goal always of course now moving backwards again we go to uh, verse 17 and the Lord is talking again about the law of consecration, the United Order, that He is starting to teach them about. You are to be equal, or in other words, you're to have equal claim on the properties. And then He says, every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. And all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold to be cast into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. Then another beautiful verse in verse 19, every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an icing of the glory of God. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? To seek the interest of our neighbors. But he's talking about building up Zion again, and particularly in temporal as well as spiritual things, that it's not just some kind of group of ascetics who have to live without things or or live super simply walk around in sackcloth and ashes no it's about developing ourselves remember that to be a part of this order is an individual choice and it al- it allows for us to develop our not only our needs or meet our needs but also our wants and desires i think that's beautiful again socialism very different animal where people are compelled to do whatever the state finds necessary or desirable, and it could even mean para- uh, husband and wife working in different places at different jobs because that's what the state needs. But this is so individual, and the Lord wants us to develop as human beings in the process of consecrating. So. If we have a desire to learn something new, or develop a new talent, or a new skill, or a new business, or travel, or be further educated, whatever it is that we have an honest and and righteous desire for, in addition to the basic needs of ourselves and our families, we have a right in in a prosperous community, and I say prosperous because the Lord prospers his people when we are living righteously according to his law. So as there is surplus, those wants come into play so that we can develop ourselves, become more than we were before, and again, then use all of that to bless the community. We can tell, I'm pretty sure, the difference between righteous and unrighteous wants. Unrighteous wants, the Lord talks about just wanting things to consume them upon our lusts, just for the greed of it, or just to have stuff, or to be richer than our neighbor. That's not what we're talking about, but the chance to develop and become and expand who we are and what our experiences are on this planet, how we can build our talents. All of that is a part of this wonderful plan of the Lord's. I have a personal story to tell concerning this verse. We were in Las Vegas and I was teaching early morning seminary along with an adult religion class in one of the stakes in the area. And I usually taught the same curriculum. So whatever seminary was studying was what we studied in adult religion. So it was kind of a nice combination. And I always really enjoyed it. And I've always enjoyed opportunities to teach. Well, while we were there, another stake president came to me and asked if I would be willing to teach the adult religion class in his stake as well. And those were two-hour classes. So it typically took a morning of the week class went about from 10 to 12. And just, you know, getting there and then visiting with some people afterwards, it was basically a morning gone of the week. I enjoyed it tremendously. But I was a little concerned about taking on too much. I didn't want my family to pay too big a price for this opportunity to teach. So I was mixed about it. And I prayed about it. And we talked with my husband about it. We thought about it, looked at the pros and cons of the schedule. And It wouldn't take any more prep, really, because I would be teaching the same information, the same lessons. But it was about that commitment of another morning of the week. So I prayed, but I couldn't really seem to discern a clear answer. I didn't know if my own enjoyment of teaching was getting in the way. I just wasn't sure. So I went to my husband again. And I was really grateful that I was able to do this and that I could trust him with this. I went to my husband, Chris, and I said, I need help getting this answer. I'm really not sure what's best for our family and for this time. So would you please try to get inspiration on whether or not I should accept this invitation? And Chris said, sure. And he started thinking about it and pondering and praying about it. And I think his answer surprised us both. It was the answer that came right out of section 82, verse 18 which he read that week and felt contained the answer to the to the question again reading that every man may gain other talents yea even a hundredfold to be cast into the lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church and chris's answer was i think that's referring to you at this point that right now your teaching desires and talents should be cast into common property of the church, and that means teaching the class. I was a little surprised, and I was really grateful that he was willing to see that answer and find it for me. I taught both adult religion classes until we moved from Las Vegas to Utah, and that second class, as with the first class, was a tremendous blessing to me. I met people that became lifelong friends I had so many great blessings that came directly from teaching those classes from the people that I became close with. It was a tremendous blessing, and I hope that I gave something back to them because it was uh, a great privilege. So I'm really grateful. This uh, verse has a special meaning to me in terms of guiding my life at that particular time, and I hope forever. Okay, continuing our backwards journey in section 82, let's go back up to verse 10. Very familiar verse. We quote it often. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. Very familiar verse. I'm going to point out that there is a clear condition here that the Lord is saying. You know, the Lord keeps himself to his word and he fulfills his word in truth. He is bound to the words that he gives us, willingly bound. He wants to fulfill all his promises to us, and he does. That said, the blessings that we desire from the Lord are all conditional on our doing what he says. Sometimes we don't like that idea of conditional reward. I'm not sure why, because the world is set up that way, but uh, we have a pretty entitled attitude sometimes in our society, and people get a little stuck on this idea that there's actually a requirement before some blessings can be attained. One of the examples that resonate about that for me came a long time ago. We were living in Chicago at the time, and Chris was teaching the seminary students that were doing home study seminary. So it was not an every day. It was not early morning. It was one evening a week that they would come together in the chapel and visit there about the week's lessons and the curriculum that they were studying in seminary. Well, Chris was out of town one week, and he asked if I would go substitute, which I happily did. And while we were there, I don't remember what the topic was, but the subject came up about um, the signers of the Declaration of Independence and how they had appeared to Wilfred Woodruff in the St. George Temple asking why their work had not been done. And that Wilfred Woodruff went immediately and found another guy in the temple that was cleaning up or something, and they went to the baptistry and they started doing baptisms for the signers of the Declaration of Independence, as well as the presidents of the United States, and other eminent men and women. And then they completed their other uh, ordinance work as they could. But when I mentioned this story to the seminary kids, I also mentioned that they did all the presidents of the United States up to that time in history, excluding Martin Van Buren and James Buchanan. Because Martin Van Buren, of course, was famously, infamously, the president at the time that Joseph Smith went seeking redress and help for the saints who were citizens of the United States and were entitled to some protections under the law. And Martin Van Buren infamously said to the prophet, your cause is just, but if I help you, I'll lose the Missouri vote. Uh, He never won another election again, but that wasn't really even the point. The point was that he knew he should help the saints. But he wasn't willing to do so because he was afraid it would cost him politically. And that was a pretty dumb decision to make. And then James Buchanan, of course, was the president who sent out the army in the so-called Utah War, where they were just checking to see if the saints were developing some insurrection or whatever. Anyway, it was a pretty quickly over situation. But because of that aggressive maneuver where they had to take the blocks off the temples that they had started building in the Salt Lake Temple. And it caused some distress. They didn't do his work either at that time in St. George. And Wilfred Woodruff wrote in his journal, when their cause is just, the work will be done, using the same words that Martin Van Buren had said. Well, I told the story and the seminary kids were not very happy about it. And they (laughs) really protested. They said, well, that's not nice. And I said, what what part? And they seemed to sort of collectively express some indignation that somehow there wasn't this complete forgiveness automatically for anybody who had done something serious. And they wanted to think that their work should have been done. We had an interesting discussion that followed, but really it's a similar theme today, isn't it? We have a lot of people who don't really like the idea that there are conditions or justice, we could say. I've referred before to Alma 42, and I'm going to do that again. Alma 42 is a great chapter where God talks about how there are laws given and punishments affixed, and that this is necessary, basically, for the universe to be satisfied, and that he himself cannot disrupt that requirement or he would cease to be God. In other words, if mercy were to rob justice, God couldn't be God. And he wouldn't do that because he does align perfectly with the laws of the universe, with truth and, and balance and, and what is right. So in chapter 42 of Alma, one of the conclusory statements is thus only the truly penitent are saved, which is a wonderful statement. Only the truly penitent are saved. In other words, there's both mercy as well as justice. The penitent can be saved, but they have to be true penitents. They have to really complete the process of repentance. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here, so hold that thought. But let's continue for a minute with this idea You know that the blessings of the Lord are conditional. He loves us, but the highest levels of that love are manifested in the gift of eternal life in the celestial kingdom and the chance for eternal marriage in the top level of that kingdom in the promises that he makes that we could even rise to the stature of christ and become joint heirs with him in that kingdom these are amazing things and they are conditional they don't come to everybody again we just recently studied that in section 76 that not everybody ends up in the same place because they didn't all meet the same conditions there is mercy but there is justice well sometimes people really don't like that very much in fact I was surprised one day when our, a couple of our daughters came home from young women's. And apparently at that time they had a monthly scriptural theme that they would all stand up and recite at the beginning of their meetings. And one month their scripture to recite together was section 82, verse 10, but only part of it. And all that they would say, or and they were instructed to, to say together was the first part, I the Lord am bound. And when my daughters came home and told us this, I was a little bit horrified. <laughs> I was like, wait wait a minute. What do you mean, I the Lord am bound? Are we, are we forgetting the fact that the only way that we can have those promises fulfilled is if we do what he says, as it says immediately following? Or are we just going with the I the Lord am bound? And it sounds like we're a little bit focusing on the entitlement. I think that can be a problem, just just saying. Now, earlier in this section, now I'm going to go back up to verse 3. For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. I don't think we need to add very much to that, other than to just acknowledge that many of us have been given very much. Just to have been born in the church, or even to have come into the church through conversion, and baptism is an amazing blessing when so few of our Heavenly Father's children will ever have that in this earthly time. So I think it's wonderful to go to the Lord and check periodically about what he requires of us. What does he want from Lily Anderson? What does he want from you? Are we fulfilling the foreordained callings that were assigned to us in the pre-earth life or the things that God has in store for us to to use to develop our talents or to do his work or to build Zion and add to the cause of Zion. And now I want to go to verse seven, which became a really interesting verse to think about. The Lord had talked earlier in this section about forgiving the sins of the people that he's talking to, and that there were some who had committed sins. And of course, we are imperfect people and we do make mistakes and sometimes we have moments of rebellion and we sin and he's saying that he's forgiven them and then in verse seven verily i say unto you i the lord will not lay any sin to your charge go your ways and sin no more that's an important part right there to sin no more but unto the soul who sinneth shall the former sins return saith the lord your god so we have some thoughts about this But they got even more interesting when I looked online and I saw that some people talking about this verse in section 82 really don't like it. And these were members of the church who were not anti at all, but they were just making comments. And one of the concerns that was expressed was that that, that this couldn't possibly be the full story because Otherwise, nobody would be forgiven. In other words, they're saying, well, if you sin and you repent, it's not possible that you're going to go through your life and never sin again. So if you sin again and all the former sins return, then all of us basically are toast. And that would be true if that's what the Lord were talking about. But of course, he's not because he doesn't say things he doesn't mean. And why would he say something like that? That's not the business of the Lord. The Lord is looking for ways to bring us into the kingdom, not ways to keep us out. So clearly he's not trying to create a technicality here, which basically disqualifies all of us. and makes it impossible for any of us to qualify for the great gift of celestial life. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about repeating the same sin. In other words, if we have a problem with honesty... And we don't always tell the truth. And then we decide we really need to change that and we repent. And then we are clean and sober for a while so that we're not sinning. We're not telling lies anymore. We're telling the truth. But then we get a little sloppy and lazy and we start going back to the old dishonesty. And we, again, become less than dependable when it comes to telling the truth That's when God says the former sins return. Now, let's stipulate that God is not keeping some kind of ledger and it's not a point system. So it's not that, you know, you had all those demerits and then you repented and maybe you did some good things and you got some points in the plus column, but now, you know, you go back and you sin again and now he's adding all those old demerits. It's not about that. It's not a point system. It's about how we choose to become more like his son, Jesus Christ, or not. There's a really nice speech by Elder Oaks in October 2000, The Challenge to Become. He says this, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. So Elder Oaks is saying that it's not a point system. It's not just a sum total of good and evil acts that we add up and hope we end up with a positive outcome instead of a negative one. It's what the effect of all those behaviors and choices have made us and how we have chosen to become either a better version of ourselves or not, or maybe even a worse version of ourselves. This is a really important idea. I think sometimes we do get stuck in a point system mentality. When our kids were in seminary, Sometimes they would do a morning side where they'd bring in bishops or state presidents, and the kids could submit questions anonymously, and they would print them out, and the priesthood leaders would try to get through all the questions that they could. That was kind of a good idea. And the kids would bring home that sheet of paper, and we would look through the questions. They didn't always get through all the questions, for one thing, so that was kind of an interesting discussion. But also, just to see what the kids were asking was interesting. And one time, there was a question that said this. It said... What if you want to do something, but you know it's wrong, but you really want to do it, but then you plan to repent? So, can you do it and then repent and will you be forgiven? <laughs> my husband kind of rolled his eyes and he said, Well, what are they repenting of? Are they repenting of the sin or are they repenting of wanting to sin? Which brings us to a pretty important idea when it comes to repentance. That it's not just, again, it's not a point system. And it's not just about like, okay, well, I, you know, screwed up and I lost some points or got some demerits. So now I have to do something to make that right and get my points back. It isn't that. It's like, what are we supposed to do with it? When we are in a repentant process, I'm going to suggest that we have to get to a point where we recognize how evil the sin is, or we're not really repenting. And that really helps us not to just bounce back and forth out of the sin. Like if we really are not convinced that the sin is that bad, but we just think, well, God doesn't want me to do it. So I, I want to do it myself, but then I want to be forgiven. You see the problem with that? The issue is to recognize that all sin disrupts our ability to be close to God, to have the spirit in our lives and to ultimately be in his presence. And they're not arbitrary commandments. God doesn't just say, I want to see if you can jump these certain hoops. These behaviors that God says we should avoid are things that damage us. They're hot stoves. They're cliff edges. They're avalanche zones. They're not harmless. Sin is destructive. And sin destroys the people that God loves. Again, referring to section one, that Christ himself says that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance— Not because he's impatient or unkind or judgmental, but because he knows what sin does to the people he loves. And if we're going to become like him, we also need to know that sin hurts us and it hurts others. It's destructive. In fact, we see this in the lives of the prophets and hopefully in our own lives that the more we love people, the more we hate sin. We've heard that expression hate the sin, but love the sinner, which is not a bad expression. It's a good idea to make sure that we are loving sinners, including ourselves, because self-loathing is not a part of the gospel plan, but that we do hate sin. And when we repent, we don't just go through a process of checking off the R's to think that we've complied with requirements, but we actually recognize that the sin itself was destructive and we don't want it anymore. Remember the people of King Benjamin who had no more desire to sin, but to do good continually. And that wasn't just because they had gone through the yards, it was because they had a change of heart. They didn't want to do the sin anymore. They didn't want to do any sins anymore because they could see how damaging it was to their relationship with God and to and how it would interfere with the promises that God Invites us to receive, but that are contingent and conditional on our repentance, on our obedience. So, a couple more thoughts on this. I actually looked that up too online the idea of hate the sin, but love the sinner. And wow, it was amazing to me how much argument there was about that. Again, in our increasingly entitled world, people don't want you to hate even the sin. It's not enough that you love sinners. They want you to soft pedal the sin. This is a pretty serious sophistry and one of Satan's great tools. It actually kind of resonates with Isaiah's prophecy that we would come into a day where people call good evil and evil good. And that's what's happening because the idea that we hate sin is now seen as bigoted and narrow-minded and judgmental instead of that that grows out of our love and compassion for people. Because we know that sin destroys people. God doesn't mince his words about this. He doesn't, you know, water down the idea of sin. He talks about everything that is good leads us to Christ. And we can know that it's good if it leads us to Christ. Moroni 7, right? And that things that pull us away from Christ, we can know with a perfect knowledge that it is evil and of the devil. So there really is a a battle raging here. And it's not just a friendly, you know, discussion between good and evil. It's a battle. And the lines are drawn. And they're clearly drawn. If it leads us to Christ, it's good. If it takes us away from Christ, it's bad. And we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and pussyfoot around that. Sin is bad. We want our children to know that. Not to be terrorized by it or fearful of, of their Heavenly Father or of Christ, But they should have a healthy fear of sin. In fact, they could follow in the footsteps of the great prophet Nephi, who in his beautiful psalm of Nephi, second Nephi four starts in about verse sixteen or so, toward the end of that section, Nephi says, Wilt thou make me so that I shake at the appearance of sin? He's not he's not making any bones about this. He wants to be afraid of sin, not because he's overdoing it or he's cowardly or because he's got a hang up. It's because he understands the destruction that sin imposes on people. And he wants to recognize it for what it is. And we can, if we apply that standard that Christ gives us, if it leads us to him, it's good. If it pulls us away, it's evil. And we shouldn't be ashamed of calling that out, even in a world where we're given a pretty tough time if we want to take a stand like that. But, you know, That was prophesied, right? A couple more thoughts about repenting here. I just want to note that sometimes in counseling, I'm working with a couple, and one of the spouses has done some hurtful things to the other one and is trying to repent, hopefully in a sincere and complete manner, where we confess and forsake, as the scriptures tell us. But maybe they've been bouncing back and forth. Maybe they are trying to overcome a bad temper, but they keep getting mad or they, you know, it's an addiction and they keep going back to it. And then sometimes that spouse that needs to repent will complain about the other spouse and say, well, they're not forgiving me and they need to forgive me. And I do step in and I say, look, forgiveness is the goal. It is the goal. And it is not even necessary that someone completely repent in order for the other one to have a desire to forgive, because forgiveness really relieves the burden of the offended. We've talked about that before. Nevertheless, safety is required. And when a spouse, and you're still in that relationship with a spouse, when that spouse goes back and forth between sin and repentance, then it's not complete repentance. And for them to say, well, you need to forgive me. Why do you keep bringing up these old things? Well, it's because they're not old. It's because they're current. Like, not only did you do them a while ago, but you're still doing them. So they're all connected. And again, referring to Elder Oak's speech about becoming, well, that hasn't changed yet. You're still the person who can be that hurtful. Or you're still the person who can betray in that way. Or whatever it is that the behavior is that needs to change. So I would caution people who are, you know, blaming somebody else for bringing up old, old issues. Make sure that they're old issues before you complain. And if there has been complete confessing of wrongdoing and complete forsaking, and as the Lord says here in section 82, sin no more, then it's fair to say, can we get past these old sins? Because I'm not doing them anymore. I'm not willing to do them anymore. I know they're evil. I've repented of them. I hate the sin. I wish I could go back and not do what I did before. Then... Again, forgiveness is not that hard. There are some people who do hold grudges, and that's not okay with God. So if the sin has been repented of, and the spouse or somebody else keeps bringing it up, even though it has, you know, faded into the past, and that behavior is not a part of the repentant spouse's life anymore, then there's a mistake there being made by the one who brings it up. But if the behavior is continuing and hasn't really been forsaken, And it's not really fair to say, you just keep bringing up this old stuff because it's not old stuff. It's still happening. And it's that person who is still involved with that behavior has not become a new child of Christ in that area. They have not been changed in their hearts. They haven't changed their behavior. They haven't created safety for the spouse. So just a caution, that's not old behavior. That's current behavior. I actually remember working with one gentleman who was a member of the church, and he and his wife were working on their marriage. And part of it was trying to heal from an old wound. The husband had become involved with another woman earlier. And it had been some time ago, and he had gone through a repentance process, which was great. But once when I was just speaking one-on-one with the husband, he was reminiscing about that period of his life when he was involved with another woman. And no kidding, there was kind of a wistful look on his face. And he said things along the lines of, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of that person and that period of time. And okay, no wonder the wife was having a hard time moving forward. Because her husband didn't hate the sin. He had fond memories of it. That's not okay, brothers and sisters, we can't go around saying like, gosh, those were the good old days when I was like, you know, drinking or drugging or doing porn or or, uh, you know, having an affair. Like, those were the good old days. Uh, but I'm okay. I'm past that now. No, they weren't good old days. Those days were doing incredible damage. Sin destroys. If we don't come to a place where we, like Nephi, want to shake at the appearance of sin, we haven't completely come to a place where we're sinning no more. We are, are still kind of involved in in some erroneous thinking, some problematic ideas. And part of this is just really to understand that Christ paid an ultimate price to save us from the ravages of sin. Sin is bad enough that it caused the greatest of all, our Savior and Redeemer, the innocent one, the lamb without spot. It caused him to bleed from every pore and to hang in agony on the cross. Are we saying sin isn't that bad and yet Christ paid that price? That doesn't go together. That doesn't go together. I've got a lot more to say about that, but we'll save that for another time. I'm going to add one more thought here. It was a prayer that I heard once from a youth leader who said, and it was a lovely prayer. This is a good person, really really a wonderful person, but I think there was a funny thought that was expressed in this prayer that I wanted to talk to my children about. The prayer said something like, we're grateful for the youth of Zion that have you know, remained faithful and stay strong in the church, but we're even more grateful for those who have fallen away and come back because theirs is the special strength that will build Zion. Okay, I get that she was trying to express a nice thought there, but when my kids got home from school that day, I sat them down and I said, I got to tell you about this prayer that I heard and I need you to tell me what's wrong with it. So I told them what the prayer had said. And they needed a little help to get there, but we got there. <laughs> and It's really pretty simple logic when you think about it. I said, look, if it's the process of sinning and repenting that builds spiritual strength, which is what was implied in the prayer, that somehow those who sin, who fall away and come back have a special strength. That's what the prayer said. And I'm contesting that. I'm saying I don't think that that's an accurate idea. Which doesn't mean for one second that we don't celebrate the prodigal. Of course we do, because we're all prodigals. So all of us sin and all of us need the work of our Savior on our behalf so that his atonement can save us from our sin. But let's go back to this idea. If it's the process of sin and repentance that makes us spiritually stronger, then Christ was a spiritual wimp. Because he never did that. Now think about that. Are we saying Christ wasn't spiritually strong because he never sinned and repented and that's what builds strength? No. What is it that builds strength? It's resisting temptation. And anybody who understands the principles of weight training or resistance training should know that. And whether we lift or not, we should know that, right? You don't get stronger. The muscle doesn't grow from dropping the weight. It's from resisting gravity. That's what builds strength. So repentance, this wonderful gift, this important principle that is constantly reviewed in the Doctrine and Covenants and every other scripture, and all missionaries are told to say nothing but repentance to this generation because we all need it, and that's a wonderful thing. But repentance just gets you back in the weight room. You don't build strength from sinning and repenting. Sin destroys. Repentance gets us back in the weight room, and then resisting temptation is what builds spiritual strength. Christ was the strongest of all because he never gave in to temptation. He never dropped the weight. And if we want to be like him, we have to get more and more like that. When we repent, we have to sin no more. And we can certainly avoid a lot of trouble by avoiding a whole bunch of sins in the first place, which is why he gives us the commandments. Those commandments are such perfect information about where to avoid the hot stoves or the cliff edges. So that we don't have to waste a lot of time trying to do all these sins that we could avoid. We will all fall short. But just because Christ can save us from our sins doesn't mean it's a good idea to rack up the sins. We can avoid as many as possible, be obedient the first time wherever possible. And yes, when we sin, because we are all going to fall short of the glory of God sometimes, then as quickly as possible, get back in the weight room and sin no more. Not repeat those sins. I do have to say that if there is an addiction in place, we've got to utilize resources. And God understands that process. We need to be very involved and committed to the change, understanding that there will be a process to it. And there may be some back steps in that process. But as long as we're diligent and we continue, there is success to be had. We can get into recovery, even from serious addictions, if we do the work. And God understands that process. It's not a point system, as I said. So We just stay in that system of repentance, use the resources that are available, and we can be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are marvelous. I think these are wonderful, wonderful verses that we've had a chance to talk about today. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that you'll discuss these things with your friends, with your family. Let them sink in, pray about them, and then let's get out there and build Zion. Take care.